Appreciate you being here this morning. We're in our, our second part of this series, Joyful, looking through the book of Philippians. Uh, let me ask this question. Uh, typically, when we think of joy, where is joy found? Don't, don't say Jesus. I, well, I mean, that's true, but like, don't just because we're in church, like pretend we're at Second Son or something like, like on the ball field, like where's joy found? What? Goodness, honestly, I thought you. Now I'm not gonna tell you. I thought you said bedroom. I thought what? bedroom. What? That's why I was like, what? What was that? Good, good, good on you. But you said the ranchos. That's even more like wow. So let me just uh, let me just preempt any any other discussion about that. Um, t- typically, when we think about joy, uh, we we think in terms of like events. Like if I could do this, it's going to make me happy. If 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 we go do this, this will be a fun thing. There's joy in that, or or it's found in success. If I can reach this level of 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 uh, you know my 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 career, my employment, I'm successful. I'll be joyful. Or it's we think it's found in money. If I just had a little bit more money, I'd be a little more joyful about life and my station in life. Actually, I think I don't. I think it was John D. Rockefeller was asked a long time ago, "How much is enough money?" And he said, 10000 more dollars." And and that seemed to be the Stanford. No matter how much you make. If you make ten thousand more, we think we'd be happy. Like uh, some people think that like joy is found in in, in finances. Some people uh, joy for they think with greater accomplishments is going to be more joy. If I can just if I can just reach this goal and reach this goal and reach this goal, um, that's typically where people look for joy in events and success and money and accomplishments. Uh, but the Bible says something different. And one of the reasons I think so many people miss joy is because we look for it in events, success, money, and accomplishments. And, and, and if you got a good Bible, the book of Philippians is going to be in it. And it's going to tell you that joy comes from uh, one place, and it's the place of service. That joy comes in serving. But here's, here's the problem. People don't start at that serving level. People just don't naturally start serving. Now, and I want to share with you uh, what we know of as the, the spiritual journey process. There's a spiritual journey that every person is on, and it all follows the exact same process for every person. There's going to be a serving stage in this process, but our problem is none of us ever start at that stage. We all start at the same place. You don't always end up at the same place, though. So, so let me let, let me let me share with you this process. While we go through this, let me say right up front that some people never get past the serving stage of this process. And 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 you hear it in terms like, you know what? I, I'm not going to do that. I've done my time. I don't have to do that anymore, especially in the church. I did my time in junior high ministry. I, that's not my gig anymore. Uh, I did my time. We did the, mix, the, the mission trips. I'm, I got our stuff now. Like well, you hear it in, in this kind of stagnation, this stale. I've done that for years. No more. I just need to rest. So here's the spiritual journey process. And every one of us starts and, and we, we just end up at different places. But here's what it looks like. There's the resisting stage. Every one of us starts 
this spiritual journey with the resisting stage. But here's what I mean. Before we become Jesus followers, if you're a Jesus follower, before you made that decision, we all resisted God, and every one of us resisted God's call. The Bible says each one of us like sheep have gone astray. And, and so every one of us started this spiritual journey, wherever we are in this journey, in the resisting stage. Now, sometimes we grow past that resisting stage to the seeking stage. And the seeking stage is, is just when we realize we're looking for something we don't have and we're just restless. There's got to be something more out there. And if we go past the seeking stage, we get to the questioning stage. I know there's something more out there. Now I'm asking questions. What is it? How do I find it? Where do I get it? We start asking questions. We start asking the eternal question. Is there life after this life? We start asking the purpose question. What's the purpose? We start asking the fulfillment question. How do I become fully me? And hopefully, at, through the resisting, seeking, and questioning stage, there's someone in our huddle who has a relationship with Christ and explains Christ to the person who is questioning in a way they understand. And because of that relationship with someone in their huddle, they respond in faith. And they come to faith in Jesus. But the responding stage is more than just, I'm sorry for my sin. The responding stage is there's confession of sin and there's repentance. And now I have a relationship with Jesus. After the responding stage, the way this process goes is that there's an adjustment phase, an adjusting. And this is where you realize after accepting Jesus as your Savior, you start realizing, boy, there's some stuff in my life i got to get straightened out. i got some habits I've been building a long time, and I need to make some changes, right? Okay, so maybe there's no one in our church at the adjusting stage. I don't know. <laughs> Probably we've all been there and thought, boy, i got to, huh, there's some adjustments I need to make. And after the adjustment stage, here's, we get to this stage of adolescence where we're starting to grow. We're starting to grow. Now, see if this isn't true both in the physical world with, with, with adolescence. It's certainly true in the spiritual world. The positive thing about the adolescent stage of growth is that there's a lot of growth. There are a lot of change, a lot of growth, right? You think that these, these kids going through adolescence, they change a lot, Right? There's a lot of growth, and it's good. The negative side of it is people who are adolescents think they know it all already. Right? Not only do they know it all, they're always right. Right? Think about kids in the adolescent stage. It's so hard, you can't reason with them. Because they know it all already. There's no logic because they're right. And so you say, that's fine. You're, 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 I mean, this is what happens in the spiritual journey. People go from making adjustments and realize there's stuff in my life I need to get straight to the adolescent stage. And most there's some people who've been in church and following Jesus for 50, 60 years who are still adolescents spiritually because they're always right. And they know it all. The only way out of the adolescent stage, if you're going to grow up spiritually, is to realize that it's not all about you. It's not about your time. 
It's not all about what you like and what you want. The problem is most people get stuck in the adolescence because there's only one way to grow past the adolescent stage. And this is as true in the physical world with people as it is spiritually with us. The only way out of the adolescent stage is the serving stage. To serve. Where you start to adjust your time and your schedule and you give yourself and your energy to serving others. I mean, just think about it. In the... In the, in, the, in the family's life, where you've got a bunch of adolescents in the house, how often do they, of their own volition, do the laundry and do the dishes and pick up the house? Not often at all. Because in the adolescent stage, it's all about them. They don't know how to serve. And so all they say is, adolescents, what's for dinner? When are we going to eat? Why is there nothing in the fridge? Why is the pantry entry? Why aren't my clothes clean? Right? Same thing in the spiritual world. And the only way out of that adolescent stage is to serve. Well, let me say this. If you're not actively serving, you're stuck in the adolescent stage. You're still an adolescent. If you're not serving, you're an adolescent. And if you think I'm wrong, you just prove me right. (laughs) Because all adolescents do is, no, I don't agree with that at all. The problem is, even if you get past the adolescent stage and, and, and start living in the serving stage, some people get stuck in the serving stage and never grow past that because there's three more stages. And you know people are stuck in the serving stage and haven't matured out of that when they talk about, well, this is my ministry, this is my class, this is my group, this is my way of doing it, and I better do it myself because I do it better than anybody else and it takes too much time for me to tell you how to. They're not mature. Because it's still all about them. Right? And I see it in the church all the time. This is my ministry. This is my group. This is my... See, and, and so, so many people get stuck in that. They never get to these next three, which are the real fun ones. And, and like joy starts in the serving stage. Before that, there is no joy because it's all self-centered. It's all about me. Joy starts in the serving stage, and it just grows incrementally as you go past these. The stage after serving is a reproducing stage. See, maturity reproduces. And it expands impact and influence. And you start to replicate yourself. You start to replicate what you do. Paul has a Timothy. We, we see this all the time in, in leadership in the spiritual journey. And after reproducing, if you stay in this process and you stay humble and you stay growing, you move to the maximizing stage. Very few people get to the reproducing stage. Even fewer get to the maximizing stage. And the maximizing stage is when you just you live in your sweet spot. You just live like my whole, everything in my life and my world is centered around my sweet spot of who I am. And what I do flows out of that sweet spot of who I am. And even few still get to the final stage, the celebrating stage. Well, while they're alive, they live the legacy of their life while they're alive. They don't have to wait till they're dead. Like they live in the legacy of who they are. And people start to seek out people who are living in the celebration. People seek them out, not for what they do. They just seek them out for who they are. 
But before we ever get to the reproducing, maximizing, and celebrating stage, we have to get to the serving stage. Because it's at the serving stage where biblical joy is found. Because it's until serving, life is still all about you. Then life is all about your happiness. Now, I'm not talking about serving because you're doing your duty. I'm talking about serving because there's a great joy in it. Because here's what I know. There's joy in serving when we serve with the right attitude, the right theology, and the right models. And chapter 2 of Philippians takes us right through all three of those. The right attitude, the right theology, and the right model. See, when we serve with the right attitude, we realize that this isn't all about me. And when we serve with the right theology, we realize that this is the process of maturity and growth and faith. And when we serve with the right models, we realize that there are people beyond us that we can aspire to. We're further down the road. See, when we serve with the wrong attitude, we're just grumpy and other people irritate us. Right? Have you ever been there? I have, absolutely. I mean, you fill in the blank. This wouldn't be so bad if it weren't for people. Like whatever the this is, right? It's just serving with the wrong attitude. And when we serve with the wrong theology, we become religious zealots. And we're convinced that nobody's doing it right and nobody can do it as well as we can. And when we serve with the wrong model, we think we're sacrificing more than anybody else ever has. And we become martyrs. See, without the right models, you become martyrs. We were made to serve. For two reasons. Serving imitates Christ. So we were made to serve because when I serve, I imitate Christ. The Bible says, Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So when I serve with the right attitude, theology, and models, I'm imitating what Christ has already done. And not only that, I'm made to serve because when I don't serve, I become selfish, entitled, and dissatisfied. When I'm not serving other people, I become selfish. The only thing I see is how my needs and my wishes aren't being met. When I'm not serving, I become entitled. I deserve more. I deserve better. When I'm not serving, I become dissatisfied. Nothing's ever good enough. Because my focus is all here. So let's look at these three. You ready? Joy, uh, they're serving, uh, joy and serve when you serve with the right attitude, the right theology, the right models. You ready? All three of them. You ready? Yeah. Philippians 2. If you have a Bible, brought one with you, go to Philippians 2. It's on page 1268 in my Bible, if that helps you at all. It's on the screen. It's on our app. You can follow along there. There's joy and serve when you serve with the right attitude. Philippians 2, verses 1 and 2, and verse 14. Now look at what the Bible says. The right attitude. Therefore. And let me just say, like Paul's being, um, he's going to say some stuff in, in, in the sense of going, well, well duh, of course you have this if, you've, if you're in Christ. So he's going to, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, implication is, well, duh, you do. If any comfort from his love, huh, you do. If any common sharing in the spirit, huh, you have that. If any tenderness and compassion, if you're a test of Christ, you have these. He said, if you got any of this stuff, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one mind. Now watch this one. You ready? Here's a kicker. Do everything without, go ahead, fill in the blank. <laughs> Do 
through everything without grumbling, without arguing. <laughs> if, <laughs> Let me just go on. Paul first calls the church to unity. All he's doing is mimicking the prayer of Jesus in John 17. The Lord's prayer is found in John 17. And Jesus prayed for all of us who would come after him and after the disciples. And his prayer for the church was, Father, that they would be one as you and I are one so that the world would know. Unity is paramount for Jesus and unity is paramount for Paul. Unity of the church. Unity of the church is paramount. So much so. Unity is so important to Jesus and to Paul. Thank you, Lori. Unity is so important to Jesus and to Paul. Now watch this verse. Warn a divisive person once. Warn that divisive person a second time. And after that, kick him out. If someone's in the church, if someone's going to be divisive, Grumbling and argumentative. Warn them once. Warn them twice. And then send them to the Presbyterian Church, the Episcopal Church, the Assemblies of Church, like some other. It's so important. Jesus and Paul don't mess around with the unity of the church. Here's what I know. There are four types of people in every church. In this church, there's four types of people. There's people that love the pastor and love the church. There's people that love the pastor and don't like the church. There's people that do not like the pastor, but they love the church. And there's people that do not like the pastor nor the church. All four of those are in every church and this one as well. And so the question regarding the unit and serving with the right attitude in the unit church, how do you deal with those four groups? Uh, so I, I'm, I'm going I'm to teach you some Bible, Jesus, Philippians, I'm going to teach you some leadership stuff too as we go through this, okay? So, so, so get your leadership hat on as well. Here's, here's how you deal with these four groups. <clears throat> the people who like the pastor and like the church, uh, just don't mess that up. Just whatever... Like, if you like me and like the church and I never go out to lunch with you, I'm never going out to lunch with you. Because if you got to know me, maybe you wouldn't like me. So I just don't want to mess that up. See, I'm much easier to like from a distance than I am up close. Uh, and, and so if you like me, you like the church and we never hang out, I'm not going to hang out with you. I just, I just, just do it like the unity but if you like me and you don't like the church, then I'm going I'm to leverage my relationship with you to, to get you to serve. Because I know that's the best thing for you. 
And if you're like, I don't know, Pastor, I can't. Seriously, man, like broom ball with the junior high kids, I just, well, because, like, just do it for me. We need people, just, because I know you need to serve. And I'll leverage my relationship with you to get you to serve, because it's good for you. Now, if you don't like me, but you do like the church, I'm fine with that. You don't have to like me. And, and I mean that with all love. I don't, I don't mind if you don't like me. You don't have to like me. I want you to like somebody in the church. Like I want you to be connected with somebody. It doesn't have to be me. And, and this, is why, this is why so many churches and pastors struggle. Because pastors are so exorbitantly insecure. Most pastors think everybody in the church has to like them. And, and, and I'm okay if you don't. As long as you like somebody. You tracking with me? No, I don't mind if you like me, but I'm going to sleep just fine if you don't. As long as you like somebody. Now, for those who don't like me and don't like this church, and you're in this church, yeah, I'm going to out-counsel you. I've, I've done it plenty before. And you don't know who they are because they're not here. <laughs> I mean, it works. <laughs> like, it's okay. There's plenty of churches to be a part. Like, like it's just, I'm saying, like, this unity is so important. And we can't serve in disunity. And part of our problem is, in our culture, unlike any other time in our history, we live in echo chambers. And the only thing we hear are those things we say. The right lives in their own echo chamber, and the only thing they hear is what everybody on the right says. The left lives in their echo chamber, and the only thing they hear is what everybody on the left says. And we lit, and the problem with our culture now is that we can have different echo chambers under the same roof. And there's no unity because all we're doing is listening to the voices we already agree with. So we've lost the ability to disagree without being disagreeable. And it causes such disunity, not just in families, but in the church. And so you know how to keep the unity? It's so important. Well, Philippians 2 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others. That the word means esteem. Value, esteem others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. One way we keep the unity is to humble ourselves and esteem others. See, we often get this backwards. We want to esteem ourselves and humble others. You see what I'm saying? And we, we get it so... So backwards. I've actually had people tell me, they've actually come up to me and say, you know, Pastor, I really, really enjoy your preaching, but I will never tell you that because I don't want you to get proud. And I said, well, thank you. And what else am I going to say? But I started, you know, I thought, it's, it's, not, it's not our job to keep each other humble. It's God's job. Our job is to esteem others. And humble ourselves. Now, let me, let me talk to parents for just a brief moment. Part of the main job of parents is to raise humble kids, not kids of great self-esteem. Now, just hear me on this. Our culture's got it backwards. So much of Bible is the flip side of culture. Our culture has focused and championed Kids of great self-esteem rather than kids of humility. 
And that's backwards from Scripture. The Bible says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the lowly. Blessed are the meek. Humble yourselves. Let God lift you up. Especially in our culture, kids can do little wrong. A child has a problem at school. It's certainly not the teacher's fault. Or certainly not the child's fault. It is the teacher's fault. Or the administration. Or the district. Kids not at fault. They can't be at fault. That would hurt their self-esteem. I live in the world of coaching. If an athlete has a difficulty with the coach, Andy's whose fault is it? It's the coach's fault. It's not the athlete's fault. So in protecting their self-esteem, we've come up with a generation that nothing is ever their fault. How is someone like that ever going to find joy in serving someone else? We've seen this problem all through culture in the 60s. People try to find themselves with an inward focus. And they turn to medications and meditations. And looking within themselves, they didn't like what they found. In the 70s, they looked for, to find themselves in relationships with other people, with communes and sex. And they didn't like what they found in other people. In the 80s, people looked for joy in excess. And all they found with excess was loneliness. And so in the 90s, they start looking to all this self-esteem. And we start raising kids. And we're forced in the culture now to affirm what anybody ever says about themselves or claims about themselves. It's become a high crime to say anything against how one feels about themselves, regardless of how ridiculous it is. So please understand, joy does not come by looking within yourself, and joy does not come by looking in others, and joy does not come by excess. And the answer is not found in self-esteem. If we were a tweeting church, we'd blow up Twitter right now with what I'm going to say. But joy in life comes from low self-esteem, not high self-esteem. And it's modeled to us by Jesus, who made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, humbling himself, even unto death. I'm sure that in, in, in this culture, there'll be a lot of pushback, especially from young parents and young people, about the fact I said that joy comes in low self-esteem. But please understand. I'm not talking about self-degradation. Value yourself and elevate others over yourself. Is that clear? So joy comes in serving when I serve with the right attitude. And joy comes in serving when I serve with the right theology. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13 say this, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Now please understand, the Bible says work out your salvation. Be very clear about this. Work out your salvation, not work for your salvation. It's a very, very, very important distinction. Every religion other than Christianity is a religion where humanity works to get to God. Only in Christianity has God done the work to get to humanity. So we do not work for salvation because God has already done all the work to get to me by Jesus and his death on the cross. Now I spend my life working out that salvation with fear and trembling in ways that's seen in the real world. Let me give you an example. I have an arm that God gifted me. I did not work for this arm. It was gifted to me at birth. Now, because God gifted me this arm, I work out this arm so that it is valuable and can serve and can be productive in this world. Does that make sense? Some of you have been gifted salvation and you've not worked it out. 
and it is weak and anemic, and it's a faith that has never been worked out and will never move mountains. Joy comes in working out your salvation. And in working it out with fear and trembling. Do you know what it is to do something in fear? When you're fearful of the consequences? There ought to be some fear of consequences. When a little child disobeys at home, there ought to be a little fear. Not that mommy alone found out, but that daddy is the one they must answer to. There ought to be some fear. Mama ought to step in, and mama ought to say, boy, you just wait till daddy gets home. There's fear there, and it's good. A child who grows up without fear of his father grows up without respect for authority. Work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. Do you know what trembling is? Trembling means to do one's best at one's duty. Like, I'm going to do the best I can, man. I'm going to serve with the best I can. If you've ever been a coach, you know how the, what this is like. I, I live in that world, and a coach knows the difference between his athletes who wants the coach to be impressed with them and the athletes who just want to impress their coach. It's a vast difference in the two. The athlete who just wants it to be all about him and wants their coach to be impressed with them has a look-at-me mentality. They're all hat and no cowboy. The athlete who wants to impress their coach are the athletes who's going to leave it all on the field because all they want to hear from their coach is, well done, my good and faithful. Isn't that biblical? So the good news of that is God who works in us to give us the desire to work out our salvation, fear, and trembling, and the ability. So what Paul's saying here is don't work against God's work by desiring things contrary. Don't work against God's work by living disobediently. There's great joy in serving when we're serving with the right theology. And there's great joy in serving when we serve with the right models. Philippians 2, 19 through 21, 25 through 27, 30. Paul mentions two models. And he says is this. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him. Man, there ain't nobody like Tim. He's going to show genuine concern for your welfare. Like, there's nobody like him. Everyone looks out for their own interests. But Tim, he looks out for you and for the interests of Jesus. And I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, my co-worker, my fellow soldier. Aren't those awesome words to be known by as a man? Like a soldier. The brother. He's he's also your messenger. Epaphroditus, whom you sent to take care of my needs. He longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill. He's saying Epaphroditus is distressed because you heard that he was sick and it made you upset. Like he loves you so much. He's not upset that he was sick. He's upset that you were upset that he was sick. And Paul says he absolutely was sick. Indeed, he was ill. And he almost died. 
But God had mercy on him, and not, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help that you guys couldn't do. He said, here's your models. Timothy and Epaphroditus. Timothy has genuine concern for other people. And Epaphroditus, man, he almost died in service. This boy's a... My sons were having this conversation a couple weeks ago. And it centered around what are the qualities of a man and masculinity? And what needs to be in place to, to be a man and to be masculine? And one of the things I told him, I said, in order for someone to become a man, they have to have a man as a model. A, a man doesn't become a man in a vacuum. A man has to have a man as a model. Our models are, 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 are vitally important. And Paul says two of them that I want you to model are Timothy and Epaphroditus. Interesting thing is Epaphroditus was godly. He was doing work for the, for the kingdom. He was, he was serving other people, and he got sick to the point of death. It's a very dangerous theology to think, I'm, if I'm doing things right according to God's will, I'll always be happy and healthy. It's a very dangerous theology. Now, there are models in the Bible for whom things went great. Sometime read Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 35a. These women received their kids back from the dead. They shut the mouths of lions. They quenched flames. They... It was just incredible stuff. And so for some of them, things turned out great, but very few people read the last part of Hebrews 11, verses 35b through 40. Because the Bible says none of them received what they thought they should in this world. Matter of fact, they all died. They suffered greatly for a time, only to receive a better inheritance. Those are our models. And Paul says, when you got a model like that, they are worthy of honor. If they've served you and they served well, they're worthy of whatever you think honors them. Paul says, do more. Let me give you a leadership lesson right here. I'm just letting you know because you're going to write, write this down. You're going to remember this. I'm going to tell you how to spot a leader, how to be a leader. A leader does well. A leader does extra. And the leader asks for more. That's how you spot a leader. That's how you become a leader. You do well. I'm going to do my absolute best, whatever I put my hands to. I'm going to do extra. If you clock out when your time's out, you're a good employee, but you're not a leader. There's always extra the leader does. More time, more energy. You lead from the front, not the rear. The tip of the spear. And the leader always asks for more. If you do your job and no more, good on you. You get a paycheck, but you're no leader. If you have a leader who does well, does extra, and asks for more, they're worthy of honor and honor upon honor, according to what Paul says. And he says, these guys, Timothy and Epaphroditus, they did well, they did extra, and they asked for more. Those are your models, Paul says. And when we got models like that, it helps us serve with joy, because we realize, we realize you know, I've probably not served and sacrificed as much as Epaphroditus did. I, I, I probably could do more. I probably, I probably could ask for more. And if those are my models, man, that's, that's my joy in serving. i got to attain that. See, what I know is this is sometimes it's good for donkeys like me to be around thoroughbreds like Timothy and Epaphroditus. Does that make sense? 
Your models are important. It's interesting that Epaphroditus got sick and he almost died, but he got healed. What caused Epaphroditus' healing? Was it prayer? Not according to what the Bible says. Was it laying on of hands? Not according to scripture we read. Was it the fact that they got together, went down to the chapel and lit a bunch of candles? Not according to scripture. What healed Epaphroditus? What was it? God had mercy. Verse 27, indeed he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him. It's the mercy of God. Here's what I know. God's mercy is greater than my performance every time. So if you got a need that you cannot meet, if you got a problem you cannot solve, if, you got, if you're at the end of your rope and there is no recourse, it's real simple. Ask God to respond to you according to the magnitude of his mercy. That's it. Just ask God to respond according to the magnitude of his mercy. See, for Christ's followers, it honors God to trust and rely on the mercy of God. And it honors God for Christ's followers to expect blessing and favor from God, not based on our performance, just based on the fact that his mercy is so profound. Here's the danger. Whenever I talk about serving, here's the danger. The danger is to walk out, if I don't make this crystal clear, to walk out thinking, I'm going to serve more, I'm going to serve better, I'm going to ask for more, and if I serve well and serve better, God's going to do something for me. That's a real dangerous ground. Because that means we tie God's hand to my performance. Here's what I want us to understand. The safest thing we can do is throw ourselves on the mercy of God. It's the safest thing. You know why God would respond to us because of his mercy? You, you know why God responded because of his mercy? Not because we served well. Do you know why God responded to us because of his mercy? Not because we deserve it. I'm going to tell you the reason. God responds to us with mercy because of his love. God's mercy is so profound because his love is so deep. Should we serve and serve well? Absolutely. It was where joy begins. It makes us like Christ. We're miserable when we don't. But God's hand does not move on our behalf because we have served well. End of discussion. God's hand moves in our lives not because we've been good soldiers, but because his love is so profound. Because mercy is not earned. And because God responds, not based on what I do, but because of his mercy, because he responds to me out of his mercy, I know that he loves me deeply. And because he loves me deeply, I will serve him with joy. joy. Do you follow me? I don't want any of us to walk out of here thinking, I'm going to serve well so God will. No. I will serve well because it imitates Christ. I will serve well because it makes me uh, joyful. That's where joy begins. But I will rely on God's mercy because of his love. I want you to serve. You need to serve. But above all things, I want you to experience the mercy of God. Because he loves you so profoundly. And never tie your service 
to God's mercy. Won't you pray with me? Father, I thank you that your love for us is profound and unending and unchanging. For you love the world so much, you love me so much. You gave your son. I thank you that you've given us the opportunity and the privilege of serving. I thank you that you've tied serving to our joy, not to your mercy. And Father, I pray through the Holy Spirit that you would call your people into service. That you would call us to esteem others above ourselves. That you would call us out of our echo chambers into lives of each other. And Father, I pray that you would overwhelm us with the understanding of how profound your love is and that we would serve you because you love us, not in a way to manipulate your hand. For you so loved that we will serve with joy. Jesus, we love you. Help us love you more in your name, I pray, amen. Amen. Cheerless sing.